Hello and welcome back to Vagabond Actors, where three of Europe's top acting teachers talk all things acting in terms of the business and the training and everything in between. As always, my name is Brian Casp and I'm based in Prague. I'm joined by Gary Condis, who's based in London. Hello, Gary. Hello, Brian. Hello from London. And Andrea Helene from Mallorca, Spain. How are you, Andrea? I'm very well, thank you. Hola de España. I'm practicing a lot more Spanish these days, so I'm doing well. Very admirable. That's very <laughs> good. And so tonight's episode is going to be looking into monologues and what they are and how to choose one, how to rehearse them, and how to use them to make yourself a better actor. We'll see what we get into. But as always, we want to look at what each of us has been doing to kick off our artistry this week. Well, I think Andrea has been doing something very specific in relation to... <laughs> oh, Andrea. She's been on the front line. Yes. What have you got, Andrea? Oh, I've been trying to be specific. I am this week going to be participating in a workshop here in Mallorca with four of the top casting directors in uh, Europe. And each casting director has a piece of the puzzle that they're going to be working on with us, which is it's really interesting and I think solid form. Format. And so one of the casting directors, Nathalie Charon from Paris, has given us monologues as a self-tape. So it's really the, the segment that she's going to be working with the actors on is about self-taping. But as part of that, she's given us monologues to tape. Mm. Uh, we had to choose one of five monologues. And I started on this, you know, a week before the deadline. <laughs> You know where this is going. And so of the five, I felt that I knew which monologue I wanted to do, or let's call it a speech. I don't know. But I printed up a second one that I was also interested in. And then the second one was from the show called Homeland, and I had not seen it for a while. So I spent some time looking at episodes of Homeland to understand relationships and tone and things. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do this one which was obviously a more dramatic piece. The first piece I looked at was more of a comedic piece. And then, like three days before they were due, I said, I don't know, should I? Let me go back and look at the other three and see if there's <laughs> one in there that I didn't really you know, pay enough attention to that I should consider. <laughs> so then I found a third one that could be done for a man or a woman. It's a Christopher Durang piece. And I went, oh, well, this is interesting too. I, I actually have kind of a, a different feeling about this one. So I was preparing the third one and I'm driving along with my daughter and I said, honey, I'm, I want to give you the script and I want you, your help to work on the lines. So she says, okay, well, let me, let me read it out loud first. So she reads it out loud and then she says, mom, I just don't like this one as much as the first one. Okay. <laughs> I said, okay, why? She said, yeah, I think mm. that was like, you had a really fun time with that and you should do that. So like, you know, with less than 48 hours to the deadline, I changed back to the first one again. So this will all, this will all, we'll discuss all of this when we, um, when we talk about how to choose a monologue. <laughs> and I'm, I'm clearly your yeah. expert, your resident expert on that topic. <laughs> you don't want to fall at the first hurdle of like just <laughs> picking one. Exactly. So I ended up back at number one. <laughs> and then I had to make some decisions about how to go about doing it uh, because there were, there were a number of possibilities. 
ultimately there was a there was a feeling about it that kept reminding me of a certain character in a in a US television show and I thought okay we'll just think of it that way like just think of this kind of a character and how she'd go about it and just fly with it that way and that's what I ended up doing and Brian you you took a peek at the at the final result I think yeah yeah, I watched it. I thought it was very nice. I mean, I love how deeply you feel in it. It's kind of starts out a little bit bittersweet and then you start to feel a little bit more and then it kind of moves around a lot. And I really mm-hmm. liked how you could feel you getting emotional mm-hmm. in the middle of the monologue. And I thought that was really nice. Um, one of the things, and I'm, I don't want to be harsh about it, but I think that... <laughs> Be gentle about it. Well, no, I think that, no, I will be gentle. I will be gentle. (laughs) But I think that it's like we've talked about in our, in our self-tape episode, it's good to have your technical equipment kind of set and something that you won't have to play with that much. Because I think that in terms of the sound, I would love for you to, I don't know what kind of microphone you had. I would love for you to have a microphone that is either cutting down a little bit on the room echo or a little bit closer to you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had more lighting kind of going into your eyes, that might help bring mm-hmm. us closer in, mm-hmm. um, things like that. You know, it's just very technical stuff. It has nothing to do with your performance, but it's stuff that when you have those elements checked off, it helps to bring the viewer closer into your performance. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you have to do less work in the performance to, to capture the viewer, if that makes any sense. Yes. So there's two other kind of broad points that I would kind of make. And one is, and you did this more towards the end, I think it freed up a little bit of the end of the take that you sent me. And one of the casting directors actually that you, that you were going to meet in Mallorca, Nancy Bishop, I hope she's still planning on going to Mallorca, but she calls it the Meisner stare in a self-tape or in an audition where you're so focused on your partner, on your reader, that it looks like you're kind of locked into that eyeline and not so free with the eyeline. And I think just to remember at the beginning of the tape to kind of feel like you can be free with where the eyeline is and kind of set up the geographical space around you. So what is around you? What kind of space are you in? And and how do you interact with that? And then you can establish the person that you're talking to as well, but then you'll have other things in the environment that you can look at. And you did that more to, to the end, but I was kind of a little bit sensitive, maybe because of this Meisner propensity that we have to to kind of really pay attention to our partner, that I thought that that could be something that you could play around with in subsequent takes. And then the last thing I I would say is that the direction that you were going with it was so great. And I wanted to see maybe just one other version where you completely abandon yourself in that direction without any holding on to telling the story. Mm -hmm. Because I kind of felt like you were still kind of like making the story happen. Yeah. In some moments, and I thought, well, what would happen if you just trusted that it was there and just threw it all away? Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of three things that I kind of noticed. In addition to like, like because the performance was good. I mean, I'm not saying it was it wasn't good, and it was really nice to see, and, and there were some really lovely moments. And I just was like, oh, if if I was there in the room, I would probably say, okay, now let's do one where you just completely throw everything away. Yeah where you completely abandon whatever plan you had and see what happens. 
Yeah, my second that take sense. that I submitted, I didn't send it to you guys. My second take, I tried to do that specifically because mm-hmm. I think sometimes once you feel like you've got at least one fairly solid take, I like to try for something where I just give myself, and we've talked about this, give myself permission to just mm-hmm. get a little wild. And I let me just say, thank you for being gentle. <laughs> no, hope, this is great. No, this is, this is great. It feels like it was gentle. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's really great feedback I, I because I've been, I was number one, I was having a problem with a mic. So I just had to use my computer mic. And, um, yeah. number two, I'm living in a house. that's an old Myrokine house with very high ceilings and really large rooms. And I, it's hard to create a light filled space that has some, um, you know, some sound protection. So yeah. that's an issue that I, that I struggle with a little bit here. I choose to go with the better light than to try and go into a closet. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. But I showed my daughter the takes and the one that I sent you, she said, yeah, yeah send that one. And she said, mama, you, you made me cry. I said, Oh, well that's mm-hmm. okay. That's good. And then I said, wait, there's another one I want to show you. She's like, Oh, I, I got to go do whatever, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I said, please, baby, please just let me show you one more take. And she said, okay. Yeah. Send that one too. Send that one too. So I don't know. I don't know if I accomplished the um, the fully letting go that I'd hoped for, but uh, I think it's really solid advice. And we've we've talked about it before, but I, I think it does bear repeating that sometimes after all the work is done, we forget to just close the circle and yeah. let things rest and let things exist only in that moment in time, and to wipe our brains of the the tasks that we think we have before us and, um, mm-hmm. and to just have the experience of the, of the scene. It's a very common thing for all of us at, at all levels. Well, it feels more risky yes, because you're feeling like, Oh, well, I'm not going to tell the story or I'm not going to hit the brief or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And so you feel like, Oh, I can't let myself do that. And so sometimes even it almost requires that other person in the room to just give you permission, even yeah. if they're just your friend who's reading with you to just yeah. say, Hey, let's just do one for fun. I know. And just hey, throw you know, it away or just do something completely different. Just on that note, really quickly, I had also an audition for a a U.S. television project that I had to self-tape. And the, uh, as you say, the brief, so the breakdown um, described this character a certain way. There were three main adjectives that they used to describe her in the script and in the breakdown. And I really just put all three of those out of my mind and worked on the scene the way I intuitively felt connected to it. And that felt so much nicer. I was like, well, gee, Andrea, you're not really being very brusque. Yeah, I'm not being very brusque because uh, there are a bunch of actors who are going to play it brusque. And I think there's something much more interesting going on here. I think she can get mm-hmm. what she wants in this scene from the other characters in, in many more interesting ways. So I don't know. We'll see what happens with that. But I felt I felt more comfortable um, putting aside that that little checklist that sometimes we actors feel that we have to pay such close attention to in favor, hopefully of something that felt more organic and more really out of me. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. Well, you have to report back and see what (laughs) feedback you get from the casting director. I will. She'll say, get a better mic. And, um, I want to (laughs) (laughs) say, be more free with it. Be more free. (laughs) Yeah. And stop doing the Meisner stare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
What about you, Gary? What have you been up to this past week? Um, well, I now regret that I didn't get time to watch Andrea's audition piece like you did, Brian, because, um, you know, I feel like I'm missing out on my gentle critique. <laughs> but I think you did a fab job. But one thing I will pick up on is that thing that you mentioned about Nancy Bishop phrase of the Meisner stare, because actually it is a thing that is attributed to the Meisner technique. And you don't often hear a lot of uh, negative about the Meisner technique. I don't know. It depends on who you talk to. That is true. There are some true. people who that are is, really anti. But I'm on about the technique as opposed to who who teaches it, because there is. You I mean you could say that about every technique. You know, it's in whose whose hands is it in. But w- one thing that can be a bit of a hangover, unless as you rightly say, you get a teacher who who looks out for it. Um, it also happens when an actor hasn't gone through the whole training in the right way, is that there is this propensity to lock onto the other partner because a lot of the early exercises are all about that. And if you don't get any further, if you don't have a teacher that frees you up and gets you into a more of a, a reality of a piece, then that is a hangover. And you're going to have to excuse me. Your mother is going to have to excuse me now because I know she listens to this. But um, <laughs> She'll be all right. <laughs> I call it eye-fucking. It's not the Meisner stare, it's eye-fucking. Because mm-hmm. what actors do is they get stuck in exercise mode, which is great for training, but they forget that when we are thinking, when we are retelling a story, we do break eye contact in order to maybe picture images in our mind's eye in order to connect with the dialogue that we're talking about. And yeah, it is a thing, and it's a, it's a problem, as Nancy Bishop points out quite rightly. Yeah. You've got to deal with the reality of a situation when you are dealing with the end product. And it's hard, you know. I think that there's two things to remember about the stare, whether or not it's a technique thing or not. And one of them is that you're sitting in this room. It's very clinical. There's nothing about the audition room, even if it's, and especially if it's a self-tape room, there's nothing compelling about the place where you're shooting your self-tape or you're doing your audition that has anything to do with the world that the self-tape takes place in. And so the only thing that is really real that you might be able to latch on to is the other person. Right. And like I was saying, you know, if you think about that part of your job in a tape like that is to set up the world that you're in, that's maybe behind where the camera is, then that will give you more permission to look around and interact with that imaginary world. You know, you can even do it if there is, like in in my studio, there's actually a window that you can look out at. So if you actually look out the window in the physical world, looking out the window and taking in what's out the window and being interested in what's out the window, the audience doesn't have to know exactly what you're looking at, but they know that you're looking at something. That's really going to help to set up that there is a world beyond just the person that you're talking to. Right. You know, Nancy Bishop being a casting director and she's encountering it a lot in castings and your your examples there about being in the audition and casting environment. But I also have encountered it as an actor and as a director and as a coach, uh-huh. uh, people doing it in performance. And that's something else. And, you know, yes, you could argue that a shy character will look away more and a psychopathic or sociopathic or aggressive 
or dominant character might keep focus more in order to unsettle or, you know, certain moments. But it is a problem with certain actors because there isn't a reality. If you look at people who are talking, you know, they look away, they have to think, they go into themselves to think about the next thing that they're going to say. Just look at the law of nature, i.e. the acting school of life, where... Look at what people do in heated situations or non-heated situations. In relaxed situations, we are not eye-fucking one another. (laughs) (laughs) No, not usually. I mean, if you're going to do that as a choice, then you can do it. But you you have to be aware that that's what you're doing. Exactly. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. It's a choice. But if you're doing it by default, then you haven't progressed out of whatever training you've done, which has imposed that on you in early exercises. And that is also another thing, which I'll just close on, is you can see some actors, they look like they're acting in exercises as opposed to in a reality, in a real circumstance. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's one element of that that we've just talked about. But anyway, you're in- it wasn't your case, Andrea. I mean, we're kind of taking this idea that you kind of had it at the beginning, which you were quite keyed into the person. And at the end, you weren't. And we're kind of running with that idea as a, as a way to get into this uh, subject. But it wasn't we're not talking specifically about okay. Andrea's audition. By the way. Yeah, so don't worry. Yeah. Now, now Brian's digging a hole. Yeah, we're, no, we're, we're all right. No. Okay. No, no, I'm just, anyway, your original question was... What so, I'm Gary, what, so what have you been up to this week? Well, Gary. because I've been working from home a lot and staying at home, I certainly haven't been eye-fucking anyone, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, no. Or um, giving the Meisner What if we become... <laughs> um, I'm working with an actor who... Is, has been cast in a in a play by Carol Churchill, who is a fine British oh, yeah. playwright. Yeah. Um, Which play? And a number. Oh, I don't know that one. It's a play, but obviously it's not going to be put on uh, live because that's not happening still. But it's got an interesting production happening on Zoom where it's not just static. Uh, they're finding a way of actually moving the camera around a bit. Uh, so they're not. It's not just two people sat in front of a Zoom with people looking at them saying the dialogue. But anyway, it's called a number, and it's about clones, and really the deal of nature versus nurture, mm-hmm. and. There are four characters in it, but played by two actors. One is the father, and the other three um, characters are played by the same actor. And one is his son, and the other two are clones of his son. So it's just a really interesting exercise, because also another thing with Carol Churchill, she's known for playing about with form, particularly as she's got older and um, she's churned out a few more plays. She's become less naturalistic and, and started to look at um, experimenting with form. So it's a quite a dense piece uh, that isn't very naturalistic. There's a lot of overlapping, which she's very famous for, and it's quite dense and elliptical, the, the writing. So it's just been really interesting to try and work out how to go about embodying these three characters which are supposed to be the same person but because they're clones there are differences and this is where the nature versus nurture comes in and how subtle we can do that so very interesting job coaching an actor cool and what have i been doing well i we don't know when this episode is going to be released brian what have you been doing oh thank you (laughs) so we don't know when this episode is going to be released but we went back into lockdown this week 
or somewhat. Uh, and so I had to move my acting class to the online format. And so we are taking, I'm taking the students through some scene work and some text work, just because I think that that's the easiest thing to do in an online format, at least for now. And we'll see how it goes. The digging into text episodes that we've done. I think the, those who have listened to it have really gotten a lot out of it. And we are uh, going through the Days of Wine and Roses. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, last scene oh. from the Days of Wine, oh, and, Wine yeah. and Roses. Fantastic. And so it's nice because there's a lot going on, but there's such a it's such a clear scene. Mm-hmm. And it's so cut and dried, but there's a lot to dig into. And so it's a great scene to introduce people to this way of pulling out from the text instead mm-hmm. of putting into it. Mm-hmm. And they're really um, responding to it. And we'll see how we can actually do scenes through little boxes on the screen, but we'll see. This episode of the Vagabond... This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So tonight, we are going to look at monologues or longer speeches that an actor or a character might have. And we want to look at where they're useful for an actor in terms of whether you're going to be auditioning. A lot of times uh, schools or sometimes plays, not usually um, filmed projects, but sometimes film projects will ask actors to have a monologue and the different types of monologue that you're going to be asked to have in your in your back pocket. And we're going to look at how you might go about selecting one or where you might be, if you want to find a monologue, where that might be. And we're going to also be looking at how you can rehearse it and then how you can use that type of rehearsal or working with monologues to inform the wider work of a speech or a monologue in the middle of a scene, or maybe it's a soliloquy. We'll see where we get to. But I thought I would start, I think, with where might we be using monologues? Mm, good question. Uh, yes. Uh, that's not. I mean, it's very broad, maybe, but like, so, you know, so, so you're probably going to be, if you're in drama school, if you're thinking about applying to drama school, you're probably going to be asked in the audition to bring a contemporary and a classical monologue or contrasting monologues. So, what does that mean? What, Gary, what, what experience might you have with that? Well, strangely enough, as if by the stars aligning and kismet and all the rest of it, I am presently coaching, which is not something I do very often, but um, it's a friend of a friend's. I'm coaching a young guy for entry into drama school. 
and he's had very specific requirements. They differ between school, drama schools to drama schools, but they are very specific. For instance, one drama school that he has to put on tape for in the next couple of weeks in London is asking for 21st century monologues, not even mm. the 1990s or the 1990s. Well, it's 20 years, 1990s. you know, 20 years. Yeah. One is a Shakespeare piece, which is very standard, even in the States, but here in, in, in England, mm. and a contemporary piece that is 21st century. And they do have to be contrasting. But then there's other drama schools who are asking for three pieces, one Shakespeare piece and uh, a contrasting piece, then another piece of your choice. And those aren't specifically needing to be 21st century. So they can probably be from post-war, Second World War onwards. But I tend to try and make them modern because, you know, modern for me is, is 1960s, 70s, 80s onwards, if mm -hmm. not later. And contemporary is let's say, the 21st century, the last 20 years. And then other drama schools are asking for mm. getting someone to recite a story, which is something I've done when I've cast for films. I've directed a, a few short films and I've asked actors to prepare a scene, but sometimes I haven't even gone on to that because I've got them to just tell me a story from their life to see how much they are acting, inverted commas, and all the rest of it. But those are what I'm encountering and it does take, it takes a lot of selection, but also the first sort of deciding factor in all of that is trying to choose a monologue material that fits him right now. That is not just age appropriate, mm. but also speaks to their strengths. And what I mean by that is the difference with someone going to drama school or auditioning for drama school and someone who's auditioning using a monologue and auditioning for a job, let's say, is that drama schools obviously don't want a finished product or they don't want someone trained, obviously. So <laughs> it's more important that you don't try and show them all the bells and whistles that maybe you do or don't have, which is debatable at that age and that stage. But something I've got to grips with through doing it myself when I went to drama school and kind of process of elimination and going actually they you know i'm trying to put on lots of accents and lots of all the tricks you know i'm trying to be richard the third because he's got a hump and he's got an act <laughs> and i'm trying to be Laurence olivier and now because that's the actor i want to be and actually they just want to see your essence they just want to see who you are and most of the time actually when i when i auditioned they just said you know what they stopped me halfway through and they go sit down and I go, okay. Like, Richard, <laughs> Richard have a seat. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I go, sit down and um, just imagine you're on a park bench or you're in a park and it's a summer's day and your friend's next to you and you're just speaking to him. Do the speech like that. And it's because I was putting a lot on, yeah. you know. And I think that's essential for someone who's going to drama school particularly is to find a speech that doesn't require you to have to pull on a lot of bells and whistles and allows you to just simply get at who you really are and your sweet spot and not to interfere with that. Mm. That is the main deciding factor for choosing a monologue, as well as it being you know, appropriate in age, of course, and gender and all the rest of it. Um, another thing that I choose, which is not necessarily a, a prescription by drama schools, but I also do it for actors who want to work on a monologue for practice or want to work on a monologue for audition purposes. And this might sound obvious, but choose a monologue that is active. 
you know, something that doesn't just tell a story because you'd be surprised. I get actors who bring me a monologue and I go, well, it's okay, but you know what? What you've chosen is the most boring possible monologue because it's the messenger. Delivering a message has no real necessity in it other than delivering a message. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you make that work and how can that actually bring you to life? So choosing a monologue that's active where there is something that you need to happen Look for pieces where there's action going on right now, right here, and where the character has something at stake that you have to invest in. Andrea, what's your experience with guiding students or even yourself in in terms of choosing or when a monologue might come in handy to have one? Because I I have to admit, I don't have a monologue in my back pocket at the moment. I haven't been asked for one in years. So they're less and less requested, aren't they, nowadays? Yeah. Well, certainly the kind of work that I've been getting lately. Yeah. Andre, you know, what do you, what they, do you have? I think they, they can be useful as a training tool mm-hmm. for an actor to always keep a couple of monologues going in rehearsal for the possibility that you may enter an audition situation or an agent interview situation and be asked to present a monologue. So there is a line of thought that actors would be well served to always have some in their back pockets that they're working on and to develop a, sort of a repertoire for themselves. But I do think, yes, sometimes the agent interviews are also an, an occasion occasion when you may be asked to do a monologue. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, if you are on the hunt for representation, I would say that your surroundings are an information piece in the experience of this scene. And if you're sitting in the office with a manager or agent and you're doing a, a monologue, it's it's probably going to be a little bit more challenging to do Richard III, unless you really are looking to do strong classical pieces in the theater. Otherwise, I would say always be looking for something that has some authenticity for you and that you mm-hmm. enjoy doing. And as Gary has said, you know, if you find something in it that that brings you to life and that's active and that engages you and that has a clarity of doing, because when that takes over and you give over to that drive, that objective, you can engage the other person in the room so much more easily, I think. I actually did one. (laughs) This was really fun, I have to say. I was looking for a new agent and I had been doing a one act play that was a comedy and the character that I was playing was a talent agent. (laughs) So I (laughs) took a section of one of the scenes and created a monologue out of it and it included a phone call. So I was indeed asked to do a monologue in this meeting that I took with an agent. And so I did it and I started it and then you know, I had to go for my cell phone and my purse to do the call. And I knew that she was sort of startled, like, wait a second, is this actress really like, is she going to take a call right now in our meeting? But it was part of the monologue that I was like on the phone doing the agent thing and giving her my own nonverbal communication while I was on the phone, blah, blah, blah. It was a really fun thing. I was excited to do it. I had a creative approach to it. I enjoyed the character. It was something I would have easily been cast in. In fact, had been cast in. It was appropriate for my type and my age. And I had a lot lot of fun with it. And it was something that in the realm of a a small room um, didn't feel overwhelming or out of place. It was just just 
something where I could be spontaneous and authentic and, and have a good time. So I do think um, it's it's important to discuss when you might need this because those situations will also give you some guidance on what kind of material to choose. I think it's really important, especially now that the kind of more naturalistic style of acting is so prevalent mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you are choosing monologues that are close to you. When I have students that ask me about, well, what kind of monologue should I choose or what kind of scene should I do for this audition if it's something where they have to choose it themselves, I always say you want to choose something that you know that you can really do well with. You want to aim for high on the perfection score and you don't have to go all the way for a shoot for a 10 or a nine on the difficulty score. Because like you were saying, Gary, the closer the monologue is to what you care about maybe, or it hits something inside of you, the more likely it is that you're going to be able to incorporate that kind of essence into who you are. And you won't have to stretch as much, which certainly when you're in an situation where either getting an agent is at stake or getting a job is at stake or getting into school is at stake, you want to be nailing it and not stretching. In a class, if you're in a class and you're choosing a monologue for work on yourself as an actor, then of course stretch and of course reach for things that are further afield from who you are. But I would say in choosing a monologue for yourself, choose one that's that you go, oh yeah, this, oh, this really, I could nail this. I could really eat this up. Um, as opposed to kind of like, oh, am I quite nailing this accent, I don't know, or you're going to put a lot of focus on the accent, or you're going to put a lot of focus on what in a Meisner class you'd call the impediment, um, which could be the the physicality, which I'm not saying don't do, but focus first on the stuff that's closer to you. Yeah, absolutely spot on. I think depth rather than range and, you know, extra things, which is what we go into acting for is to be able to play the range and do different physicalities and character work and all of that. But don't change your accent. Like you're saying, stick to your own accent. You've been invited to audition because of who you are, let's say for an audition for an agent and recognize that there's a slightly different emphasis there with an agent or a drama school or, or your meeting. So, or even on a job, it's like monologues are a different thing to a prearranged scene that's been sent to you. Mm-hmm. Stay as true to who you are and don't worry about the range, but really get into the depth and out of that will be some range will come. But, you know, there's a couple of other things that I remember when we decided we were going to talk about this. I tried to remember some meetings I had with agents where I did monologues. And I remember completely being torn apart completely being torn apart by this agent going oh no and rightly so in one way although he could have done it in a bit different but he was this very old school english agent who really pulled no punches and he just said i didn't believe a word of that if i wasn't polite i would have fallen asleep by now there's no way i'm going to take you on that's what you're capable of and all of that stuff and i was acting my heart out and I actually got angry because I'd been searching for a number of agents for, for about a year and I hadn't got one. And I got a bit angry and I had to go back at him, right? And I kind of bit back, which I don't recommend, but... Um, well, you already were not going to be signed with him anyway, so, you know. Come no, on. true. But then, so, yeah, okay, you might as well, you know, leave him with something. But but he said, but when I bit back, he went, there you go. Now do, now do the speech in that Right? Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So now do the speech, but forget all of that bullshit that you gave me in acting. And if you're upset with me right now, then say the words 
in a manner which expresses your upset at me right now. And I did. And he went, there you go. That's far more interesting. Now I'm interested in you. Yeah. From then on, he said, okay, just, he said, do you want a coffee? I was like, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, okay, I'll have a coffee. And he's like, he brought in his secretary and we had a coffee and he started to chat to me. Now, strangely, you know, he, I didn't sign with him, but he then gave me his attention. He then helped me. He then gave me advice and he was giving me his time, but it's more about, I want to see you. I want to see you right now. All the acting I presume you can do. What I, what I want to see is I want to see you and what I'm dealing with here, because particularly with agents, which is, you may well have to produce a monologue for an agent not i'm not so sure about that that these days but then they they're interested in you you know i think it depends Mm -hmm. on how much work you have and what they can see already in your body of work if you don't have a lot of work then they might ask you to to bring in a monologue to see it maybe another side of you that they didn't see in a in a showcase or something like that yeah but i would i would say gary that every audience member wants to see you anyway that it's always you that's the truth that you bring to it always. If you have something like contrasting monologues, like I think it's very easy to say, oh, this one's contemporary, this one is classical, or this one is a comedy, this one is a drama. But contrasting also might mean this one is showing me angry and this one is showing me in love, or this one is showing me having just been betrayed and having to deal with my relationship breaking up and this one is dealing, showing me falling in love again, you know, like kind of t- taking that contrast. Right. Because when you're looking at, okay, I got to choose a monologue and then I have to choose something that's contrasting. It doesn't have to just be in the style of the monologue. It's contrasting aspects of you that you might be bringing out. So also take a look at that. Absolutely. The, the dynamic between the two. One character is breaking up with his girlfriend and is grief-stricken and the other one's just won the lottery. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's a contrast right there. That's a contrast right there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Andrea, where do you look for monologues when you have monologues to look for? Um, I love the great American plays sort of from the 30s to the 60s. Um, I love the films of the 70s in the U.S. I mean, I think... Um, the material that resonates for me is generally in the dramatic uh, genre. It's it's rich, it's intense, it's life or death circumstances. In the comedic genre, I very much tend to enjoy Neil Simon and quirky work. You mentioned Christopher Durang, right? Yeah, <laughs> Christopher Durang. <laughs> <laughs> talk about quirky, comedic. Yes. So I, if you want to talk about nuns, Christopher Durang is the <laughs> best. <laughs> so I like to go to source material that I like rather than just sort of looking for a monologue. I've certainly been in the situation where I've needed to just pour through monologue books and I've got pages connect things that work for me. But of course, those are often written as monologues. And they don't necessarily have the context of a full relationship. So you have to create something around that. You have to create your circumstances, whom you're speaking with, why you're saying it, what's at stake. Um, that's okay. There's some really fun material that's been written out there as monologues. But I have generally preferred to look for pieces that are pulled from a whole um, that I find maybe more layered and interesting. So it's kind of that active work that we would recommend all actors be doing anyway, which is reading mm-hmm. through plays, mm-hmm. reading screenplays and right. seeing, oh, that's this passage 
is something that really speaks to me. Or maybe you are watching a movie or watching a play and you go, oh, that that's a really amazing speech that someone did. That's and you right. kind of take a little mental note of it and you kind of keep a log of what's out there and what might be something that you might be able to bring out. That's right. I've also, yeah. as I said before, with the acting, the talent agent and phone call, I have done that a couple of times. And that's been really fun where I've looked at a scene and created a monologue out of that. And maybe it's been a phone call or it's been another setting, but I've been able to string together the thoughts of my character in a way that it makes sense. And it gives me something very active to do and to respond to. So that that's worked for me as well. There are plenty of monologue compilations out there, particularly now. You know, when I first started out, there were a few, but now there are so many. And um, I'm working those going to drama school and he's been to the national youth theater and they've even got one the national youth theater have got a book of monologues and they tend to be very contemporary 21st century and they're a good resource for for ones that aren't exhausted yet because there are a lot of ones that are exhausted that mm-hmm. people know these sort of obvious ones but i would pick a monologue that is a monologue and not a soliloquy but a monologue that comes out of a play that is part of a scene which is an answer to someone about something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's important because it has context. I talked earlier about some drama schools have asked for a piece of self-writing or a little tale or a, mm-hmm. a memory. And I said that I'd, I'd used it in, um, I just got people to improvise in, in film auditions that I directed to just tell me you know, how they spent last Christmas and just to get a sense of who they were and all the rest of it. But having said that, I would say if you had to make a choice in order to pick something, don't do a self-written monologue. You're probably not as good at, at writing them as exactly. people who are writing plays mm-hmm. that are published. Pick a published playwright, but also because that's the job. You're going to be not writing pieces for yourself. You're going to be interpreting pieces. It's about being able to show that you can do this, but also it gives the casting director say or the agent that you're maybe auditioning for the information they need in relation to you and the business of acting. So really do get a good monologue and go to all the greats. Go to all the the great playwrights or the, the contemporary playwrights that you've seen on the stage. You know, often actors want to kind of go and do something kooky or different and obscure. And that kind of gets in the way of what we were talking about, which is finding a piece that allows you to be unlocked. Mm -hmm. It's more about the writing being this type of thing rather than it being a, a receptacle for you to shine. Read plays, as you said, Brian, write down monologues that stand out and look at the greats, look at contemporaries, Look at ones that have been put on the West End or on Broadway or that have been given awards and seek them out and read them. And while you read them, you while you're in search of a monologue, you are reading plays and feeding your acting. So, you know, monologue anthologies are a quick and easy route. You should be reading plays anyway, as you rightly said, Brian. So pick them from there. So avoid standalone written pieces by yourself or other people or confessional pieces uh, or diary thoughts or whatever, and get a really good professionally written piece from a play that's been published so that you provide the people you're auditioning for a good shot at seeing how you handle dramatic literature. I've just thought of something listening to you 
say that, Gary. Going back to this idea about bringing yourself to the piece. Because I was thinking, oh, but you, you don't want to use something that they've seen a thousand times before. But the truth is, the people that are doing the auditions at drama schools, the people that are agents, it's their job to have seen everything. Right? They've gone and seen, if it's a monologue from a, from a well-known play, they've seen the best actors doing that play. You are not going to be going in there and saying, this is the best interpretation of this monologue that they've ever seen, most likely. I wouldn't even try to aim for that. What you should aim for is, this is me right. through the lens of this monologue. Right. right. You're showing them you through the crucible of the text of the monologue or the the circumstance of the monologue. That's what I would focus on because they have seen it all before. Right. Right. And if you're trying to do it and do it the best overall performance, you're you're probably not going to succeed at that. Because like, you know, like Gary um doing Richard the Third when he was 18 or 20, you know, mm-hmm. it's not going to succeed. Absolutely. Right. Sorry, Gary. No, no. And it didn't. Um, I mean, they stopped me. Right. Said, yeah, they stopped you and said, hey, can you can you just chill out for a second and have a conversation <laughs> and show us who you are? Yeah, just um, to your friend, it, truthfully, real, like, make it real. And it was it was no longer about Richard III. It was about me saying some words to a friend. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and remember, when you are auditioning for a drama school or for conservatory, the people who are auditioning, they are casting that year's group. So they're looking for how does this actor, yes, they want a certain level of quality. They want a certain level of dedication. They don't want crazy people, although they're going to get them because they're auditioning actors. And so you bringing you in are going to say, this is me so that they can know how you might fit in with whoever else they think they want to have as part of that class that they're creating. Or for an agent, it's slightly different, but they're saying, this is who we might have as one of our client list and how I might be able to sell you. So really, I mean, I know this is kind of, you know, whipping the dead horse, but I would highly focus on bringing yourself to it rather than trying to become something that you're not. People would think it's the same thing as maybe you audition for a scene, and it's not. It's a it's a it's a very short snapshot. A monologue is for audition purposes, and it requires something different. It requires a slightly different approach to having to nail a scene with a lot of dripping circumstances that are coming in, characterization, all the rest of it. It's like mm-hmm. it is, and it's everything we've talked about. I don't need to go over it again, but it's like it, it's it's think of it as a as a very real snapshot of truth, mm-hmm. concentrated. Yeah. Okay. In terms of resources, there is one other recommendation that I have. And Brian, you will probably remember this from our Playhouse West days. So as we gear the students to working on speeches, um, there are a couple Mm -hmm. of books that we encourage them to read. And these are collections of essays and interviews uh, around certain topics. So Studs Turkel was one of the early authors of this kind of a work. He wrote this, I don't know, 500-page tome called Working, where he interviewed people in all sorts of different jobs in the United States, and he put together this fabulous collection. And, in fact, a musical um, arose out of that. But those are some wonderful first-person stories that people have to tell all sorts of interesting things. So if you can get your hands on Studs Strickell's Working, it's 
It's fabulous. There are two other books that that come to mind that, that we've used in this work as well. And one is um, about Vietnam. It's called Nam. And it's all sorts of soldiers, nurses telling their stories. Uh, it's very moving and specific and um, some extraordinary work in there. And men and women can find fantastic um, pieces in there. And then there's a book called Cops, which is the same idea, first person telling of all sorts of things that cops have experienced in their in their work and in their profession, professional and personal lives. And it's really great material because it's um, there's truthfulness in it and there's specificity in it and very clear points of view. And those are wonderful ways to, to access this format as well. So I highly encourage investigating those resources as well. Cool. Have we seen things this week that we'd like to pass on to our listeners? Actually, I did watch some of the some of the work on the crown again because of a scene that I'm preparing, and oh, I do love much of that work. Really, some beautiful episodes <laughs> there. So, yes, I, if you have not seen the crown on Netflix, I highly recommend. Yeah, it's it's funny because that's not something I'm at all attracted to. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but I've heard it's very good, uh, like very good. So um, yes. I should really. This last week, I've it's kind of a, a job, but it's a it's a busman's holiday. I've been working with a director who wants to break down films and talk about what their core meaning is and the thematics behind it and characters and all the harness kind of structural elements of a movie and using me as a sounding board which is great because we get I get to watch a a movie a week and we meet up on zoom and we tear it apart and we Mm. try and talk about how elements of that might be able to influence his film not ideas but more how he might go about dealing with that structure so I watched Pulp Fiction Mm -hmm. which I hadn't watched long time for like and i didn't realize it's like 1995 man that's mm. a long time ago. Mm. <laughs> um, Too long. but i was just because i was now looking at it with a critical eye uh, uh, and deconstructing it i there were some things that really stood out that didn't stand out at the time and things like for instance of course the famous dialogue at the beginning between john travolta and samuel l jackson about mm-hmm. his trip to europe and the difference the use of europe as a kind of benchmark or in a contrast to the Americana. Mm-hmm. So these things were really, you know, there's this real sort of pop culture Americana that in one way is being celebrated. But then one thing that really stood out quickly was um, when Bruce Willis gets hijacked by those heel hillbillies and he escapes and he has a second thought to go back and save Marcellus, who is being, you know, ripped apart downstairs. And he picks up, first of all, a hammer then he moves on to a baseball bat. Then he moves on to uh, an electric saw. And he puts all of them down, and then he eventually um, looks up and finds the samurai sword. So he has a change. He has a very moral, ethical change. He grows into a warrior that he never was and continues his line. There's also Samuel L. Jackson, who the bullets miss him, and he then has a – he believes it's divine intervention, and all of a sudden he's got a moral, ethical code. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's like, it's kind of like, you know, it's really fascinating to watch how this, what is thought of as American celebration of pop culture and the pulp fiction and movie making and all the rest of it is kind of really a look at American nihilism uh, in a a sense and how 
actually, you know, these criminals find a way out by finding some kind of moral ethical code. Mm. Anyway, that wasn't just a tip. That was a bit of a yeah, a bit of a lecture. Just on a journey, yeah. <laughs> but I would recommend Pulp Fiction again and really look for the clues because there's some brilliant mm. clues that go deeper than what it appears to be. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Brian, what about you? So I am watching uh, Dog Day Afternoon oh, as part of our, you know, it was the recommendation that one of you had. Yeah. Uh, cool. And that's, you know, also just such a, I mean, what an amazing, just obviously amazing performances yeah. and, uh, and just thinking about how free they are yes, to, to do their thing and to, to just have their moments, mm-hmm. you know, it's really amazing. Really yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have the Sidney Lumet book on, on uh, directing, he discusses at length his stories from that film and, and others. Mm-hmm. And it's a great, it takes some time, but if you want to learn from a master of filmmaking, go back and forth between reading his stories and then watching the films again. If you haven't seen them already, oh, cool. Dog Day Afternoon is one of those just brilliant stuff. Yeah. 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 So just to send it over to the listeners, if you have experience with monologues and searching for them or struggles with them or successes, definitely write to us at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram and on our Facebook page and let us know how how it's going. If you have other topics that you might want to hear us talk about or other questions that you might have about the acting process or the business of acting, definitely get in touch and let let us know. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us or, or follow us as individuals, I am at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook. I have a Facebook page. And Andrea, where are you? I am on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene and on Instagram at Andrea Helene 3. Awesome. And Gary, how about you? How can people get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I, I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Gary Condes. But uh, as I've mentioned every week, your best get hold of me. Uh, I'm trying different ways of saying it because otherwise yeah. I get into Yeah, you get bored. Get bored. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you can get hold of me on my website, probably the best uh, contact page, uh, GaryCondes.com. Awesome. From all of us here at Vagabond Actors, we hope you stay safe, uh, wear a mask, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for the